0: friends. My guest today is a talented young risk taker. Her and her husband had successful careers working at Intel and decided to begin an organic farm. 16 years later, they are the owners of Cuckoo Land Farms in Yamhill, Oregon, where they specialize in 100% grass-fed beef and lamb, pasture-raised organic-fed chickens, and sustainably wild-caught seafood. I had a great time discovering her story and learning all about agriculture and life on the farm. Here she is. My friend Chrissy Zayarpour. First of all, I want to say thank you very much for coming out here.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Uh, you're in Hillsboro, right? Yamhill. Melt.
1: Yamhill.
0: Yamhill. Okay, okay. Yeah.
1: So yeah. Yamhill is about 35 miles, yeah, 25 miles south and slightly west of Hillsboro.
0: Okay. So yeah, that was a drive getting here today.
1: Woo. Bit yeah, yeah. I um, I budgeted about an hour and twenty minutes, but oh there were gosh. two separate accidents on the freeways. Oh so no! It was uh, kind of like reminded me when I was actually, you know, working and going to work uh-huh. and having to drive to work every day. It was like commuting.
0: It's picking up. It w- the freeways were pretty bare for a long time, and now they're they're getting packed again. I can tell that yeah. the traffic is coming back. Yeah, but on a Sunday. Uh, at one o'clock, that's, yeah, that's right? too bad. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you come down here. I know that was a drive, and uh, it's beautiful out there. So
1: It is a beautiful day.
0: I appreciate you spending some time with me. Um, first of all, I wanted to ask, how do you pronounce your last name?
1: Zarpur.
0: Zarpur.
1: Yeah. You can sort of imagine that there's an apostrophe between the A and the E. Then okay. Then it gets easier. Zarpur.
0: Zarpur. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Uh, yeah. It's a very unique last name.
1: Actually... It's funny you should say that. It is a completely unique and made-up last name. It's only two generations old. So okay. my husband and his immediate relatives are the only Zara Poors there are. Really? Yeah.
0: So his his parents
1: made it up? Uh, one more generation. His grandparents.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And is that because they came to America and um, they changed it?
1: Because surn- surnames apparently weren't widely used at least in that part of Iran at that time. And so there was some new documentation program or something. I'm not quite sure what the whole backstory is, but they needed a last name and they didn't have one. So they had to make one up. So it means son of a pilgrim.
0: Okay, very cool. I kind of figured there was a story behind that. (laughs) Very cool, very cool. Uh, So just to establish for anyone who doesn't know who you are, you own and operate an organic, organic farm.
1: Yeah, so we're not certified organic, okay. but all of our practices are basically organic practices. We don't use any synthetic fertilizers or herbicides or pesticides or fungicides. Okay. Um, all of our food products are completely natural. We're not adding um, you know, preservatives or fillers or anything else in our food products. Um, The name of our farm is Cuckoo Lawn Farms. We founded it in 2005. Uh, It's just my husband, Kourash, and I who own and operate it. Um, We specialize in grass-fed beef and lamb, wild-caught seafood, and pasture-raised chicken.
0: Okay. And so is it difficult to become certified?
1: It's not rocket science, but it's a lot of paperwork and documentation. So... um, You know, if you're a consumer standing in a grocery store and just reading a label, I think um, organic certification adds a lot of value for you. Because it means some third party has at least on paper done an audit, hopefully in person done an audit to validate that all the claims on the label are true, right? We don't sell anything in a grocery store. Basically, everybody who buys something from us comes to the farm and we have an eyeball-to-eyeball conversation like the one we're having now. Sure. Um And so people can basically self-certify or self-audit, right? They can ask any questions they want. They can see the farm. Um, so I feel like organic certification wouldn't add any value. And here I'm really talking about monetary value because sure. there's a cost to all that extra time and to paying for the certifications. So if I made the business decision to certify – then that would mean I'd have to raise my prices to at least recoup the cost of certification. Sure. And at least at this point, the feedback we get from customers is that they don't feel like they need to pay more for trust that they already have.
0: And it seems like it wouldn't really benefit you that much unless you wanted to, like— mass-produce and sell to, like, Fred Meyer or Safeway or something,
1: right? Correct. And if we were selling to Fred Meyer, then we wouldn't be able to have direct conversations anymore. The label would have to carry all of the assurance, and in that case, I think a certification matters, but we have no ambitions mm-hmm. to sell through grocery stores. Mm-hmm.
0: And so, you said 2005, you guys started this? Correct. And so, what what were you guys doing before that?
1: We were both engineers at Intel Corporation.
0: Really? Okay. Yeah.
1: So between us, we have five physics and engineering and math degrees.
0: Oh my gosh!
1: Um, and yeah, we were we were engineers.
0: You just got bored making computer chips, and you're like, "Let's go! <laughs> let's go do a farm."
1: Well, that's one version of the story. There are probably four different ways to tell the story. They're all true, but um, I guess at its at its simplest, um, Kurash had always wanted to be a farmer. So even like back to junior high and high school. And at some level, he got, I don't know, distracted or sidetracked and ended up with a PhD in physics. So the next thing he knew, he was at Intel wondering, wait a minute, I wanted to be a farmer. Yeah. Um, so that version of the story is completely true. Um, another version is... Um, I was really looking for a farm like Kukulan Farms to buy food from. So, you know, as a physics major, you don't get a lot of nutrition classes, right? Yeah, okay. I You really get none. Um, but as a 40-year-old engineering manager, I had all kinds of low-level health issues. I was anemic. Uh, I had very high LDL cholesterol, very low HDL cholesterol, so like completely inverted from where it should be. Okay. Um, and I was trying to learn about nutrition and how I could get healthier. So I was looking for grass-fed meats. Mm-hmm. And this is the early 2000s, and there just weren't any. Yeah. Um, so at, at some level, if I had been able to find a farm like Cuckoo Lawn Farms, I'd probably still be <laughs> working <laughs> at Intel and just be a customer. Um, so the farm was kind of born of a temper tantrum, like, well, goddammit, I Guess I'm just going to have to figure out how to do this myself. Mm -hmm. So we did. Um, We wanted to work together, and having fallen in love together at Intel, working Uh in the same department, you know, that wasn't going to work. So they wanted. we had to work in different departments.
0: Was there a conflict? So, like one of you were the other's yeah, boss?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. I was Kourash's boss.
0: Oh, wow. So
1: if we wanted to work together, it became pretty obvious we were going to have to start a business together. So that was part of the consideration <laughs> as well. Um, so lots of things just came together. I mean, as as is often the case for a dramatic change, right? It's not just one trigger. It's that the stars all aligned.
0: Yeah. So you guys weren't even married? No. Nope. You quit Intel.
1: Well, these things didn't happen exactly in that order. So we weren't married. We bought the farm. I left Intel. He left Intel.
0: Wow. That's dedication.
1: Yeah, well, crazy things happen, right?
0: (laughs) I, I love hearing that because I think a lot of people, they just get in a rut and they just ride it out. And it sounds like you guys even though you were successful and probably making really good money and and doing all kinds of stuff at Intel, you, that wasn't for you. You just, you packed up and went and did the thing you wanted to do. And that's really cool.
1: Yeah. At at some level, that's, that's the case too. Um, I think Kuresh and I each, um, I mean, each separately, but also together um, are very resilient emotionally um, and high risk takers. Mm -hmm. So like, we have a better stomach for writing out risk than a lot of people do. And I mm-hmm. think that's an important thing for any entrepreneur yeah. uh, to have, or anybody who's thinking about leaving, you know, as you say, a secure, well-paying job with all the, you know, perks and extras yeah, to go it alone, to start a business from scratch, right? I mean, it takes it takes some moxie.
0: So did all your, your friends and your associates were there like, you're crazy. What oh, are yeah. you doing?
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, my parents were alarmed. <laughs> yeah.
0: Oh, wow. So you guys leave and you start. So what? you just had to, like, drive around Yamhill and try to find land?
1: Well, it was 2005, so at least there was the Internet. So um, I would say for the whole summer of 2005, we basically did nothing but look for land. Mm-hmm. Um, I bet we looked at at least a couple hundred properties. Um, probably physically looked at, I don't know, gosh, 50 or 70 yeah. properties. Um, and as we did, every time we looked, we would get a little clearer picture of what we were actually looking for. Yeah. And we learned to start looking at a particular piece of property um, for what it was. Not to try to mold it into some fixed vision that we had, but that our vision could have some flexibility, depending on what property we were looking at. So, sure. the like the first piece of property we looked at, or that we actually made an offer on, had been a horse breeding and boarding facility. Hmm. And neither of us had any experience with horses. I was afraid of them. Um, but it was like all of a sudden I could see it, that this place had the economic potential to pay for itself and a little left over. And that was like the breakthrough that really got us thinking, maybe we're not just looking for a hobby farm. Maybe this could actually like be something that paid a salary.
0: And so it came with the horses or it was just
1: land? No, that was just land. The house had been rented to some tenants. The the horse business had actually moved out of state. Uh-huh. So it was all the facilities, but it wasn't an intact business. And, um, so, like, once we had considered that, then I thought there was a flower business, like, cut flowers. Huh. Um, there was another one that had this strange bakery commercial kitchen attached to the house. Wow. I and mean, there were all sorts of opportunities. So you start learning that the opportunity is what you make it to be. Like, the property has some inherent characteristics about it, right? And then, like, how flexible and opportunistic can I be to take advantage of that? Um, We looked on the east side of town, the west side of town, up north, like in Scapoose and St. Helens. Mm -hmm. So, some of it is what the neighbors are doing, too, because, like, you couldn't have two cuckoo farms right next to each other. There's not enough of a market that close together, right? You could probably have one on the east side of town and one on the west side of town, but like if somebody is already doing the thing you were thinking about next door, um, yeah, that wouldn't be the right address.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. So you, you found the land out there and, uh, it, you said it had a house on it already?
1: Yeah, it had a house on it, which was, well, it had a house that could actually be lived in, which was like a big plus compared to some places. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Um, Turns out if you're looking for rural land, you can—I don't care what your budget is, this is always going to be true for anybody. Either you can afford the house you want, but it's not on the land you want, and it's not where you want it to be. Or you can afford the land, but it doesn't come with any house at all or not one you would want to live in. Sure. Or you can find exactly the right house and land, but it's real far away from where you want to be. You know, if you sign up for a three-hour commute every day, you can— Find a house anywhere. Yeah. Um, so the the property we finally picked. Um, oh, that first one with the horses, by the way, did not have a house that you could actually live in. Um, so we would have had to get an apartment someplace else oh, while we no. were remodeling that. Yeah, it was a disaster.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so that the one we finally chose um, was a bigger house than we would have chosen, but it had a house and an attached addition that functioned as a separate. Living space. So, while we were remodeling the house, it actually had a second kitchen. Cool. Later, when we moved into the house, then that other space became an Airbnb cottage. So there now, you go. Now we have that is an income stream. There you go. Um, our place is right on the highway, um, which it makes it easy to find. I know other farms that have like a six mile driveway with no internet access. Yeah. So like Google Maps doesn't work for navigating to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you want to have customers coming to your farm, it needs to be easy to get to. Mm-hmm. Um, it had water. That was important. A well? Um, not not a well. It has city water, which okay. I didn't know it at the time, but it actually turns out to be better. Okay. Um, as I read in one of the many farming books I looked at, if you ain't got water, you ain't got nothing. <laughs> um, and it's, it's true. I mean, you can't raise animals without water. You right? can't grow crops without water. Yeah. Um, and there are a lot of a lot of rural properties that don't have any water rights don't have a well. There's a lot of risk with drilling a well. That's one of my horror stories we We spent four thousand dollars drilling a well, but we didn't get water really um, yeah
0: be, be you can drill deep enough and just not find it.
1: What we actually drilled down to was salt water so really um Western Oregon. Used to be under the ocean, right? Mm -hmm. And there are pockets of ancient ocean water that are trapped in the bedrock. Hmm. And so when you drill, you hit these ancient, like fossilized oceans, basically. Really? And so we got this brackish seawater that hadn't seen oxygen in who knows how many millions of years, but there was no drinking it. Wow. Um, for a while, we entertained little fantasies like, I don't know, maybe we could brine our chickens in it and somehow like, <laughs> yeah. you know, make a marketing message out of it. Yeah. But in the end, we just kept the well.
0: Uh huh. So it's still there, drilled. You just you get just, access. Yeah. It's
1: just kept. Yeah. Uh-huh.
0: Wow. So you guys find that place out there and uh, what you knew that you wanted to start the farm and you knew that you wanted to have grass fed beef. And was that the only direction you were going at that point? Or did you already have other plans to to
1: raise other animals? Well, my husband likes to say that the farm we started and... Or the farm we planned, the farm we started, and the farm we have now are three completely different entities that have nothing to do with each other. So really, when we first decided to get a farm... We thought we were just like getting a little hobby farm, like a, a place to live and grow our own food. Mm-hmm. Um, it was that aha moment with the horse place that was like, oh, maybe a rural property doesn't have to be a money sink. Yeah, I Maybe it can generate money to pay. Um, and then... Later, I guess, um, we developed plans where we thought it could replace at least one of our Intel salaries.
0: Okay. So when you bought, you you both hadn't quit yet. Correct. Okay. I thought you said that you both quit and then you started looking. No, so you other way. You yeah. still had the jobs and it was just going to be your own place where you could grow your own food. And then you decided to just go all in. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, and so what what do you, what did you do how many how many cattle did you get initially?
1: Well, let's see actually, um we bought a pregnant Angus cow and twenty three chickens before we signed the papers on the property. We actually moved them onto the property the day before we signed the papers, <laughs> like I say rule have, breakers, yeah, rule breakers are I don't know high tolerance for risk or just stupid, maybe um. Uh so those those were our first animals. We moved the chickens in my um in my Toyota sedan <laughs> in cardboard boxes. Nice. It was a little crazy. Uh we moved the cow in the back of a um not a full-size pickup, but a smaller pickup truck that Kurash had built like a little wooden box for. Um I mean in retrospect it's kind of horrifying because so many bad things could have happened that day, but none of them did mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then uh let's see. then we received six hundred meat chicks uh two weeks after we moved onto the property. Uh-huh. so we hadn't like unboxed the dishes and clothes, but we had already set up a shelter for six hundred baby chicks,
0: oh my gosh, and you guys um, didn't know what you were doing, right?
1: No, we really didn't. <laughs> Uh, We came out of a technology development group at Intel that basically sets up pilot lines um, and then transfers uh, manufacturing processes to the factories for ramping up to high volume. So we were naive enough to think that that was relevant, like, well, we'll just set up a little pilot line, and then just like we do at Intel, we'll run this little pilot line kind of intensely and try to break it so we can see what the problems are gonna be. Yeah. And then when we ramp things up more we'll we'll have seen all the problems. Uh-huh. You know, live live products don't behave quite that way. Yeah. 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 So our our next door neighbor is a lovely man, Ken. Um, he's nosy in the best possible kind of way. Yeah. Like he really is interested and wants to be helpful. And he came over and saw these 600 uh, meat chicks, and he was alarmed uh, because he had experience with this. He Mm -hmm. knew where this was going, right? So he knew, which we didn't, that in eight weeks, these had to be slaughtered or we were going to have a real problem. And because he was next door, he was going to have a real problem. So he was like, do you have an appointment for these yet? We're like, no. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, why would you get 600? And Koresh said, well, it's a test. And he said, a test? Have you ever heard of 10? <laughs> <laughs> and um, he he just always had our back. So there's there's very little on our farm that doesn't have Ken's hand in it somehow. Very nice. Yeah. Well, you
0: picked the right spot then.
1: Yeah. We, we tell each other frequently the best thing about the property is our next door neighbor. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there you go. Have you guys expanded from that initial purchase? Like, did you buy other land around it? or
1: we Yeah, we didn't buy other land, but we sure did expand. So yeah. we only bought five acres. Um, and again, we were just completely inexperienced. We had no idea how mm-hmm. fast we'd outgrow it. Um, we looked at one place that was 96 acres and had no house on it at all. And we were just really intimidated about managing that much land. Um, but we outgrew five acres, I don't know, in the first month, basically. Oh, yeah. Basically. Um, so we we ended up um, having a network of handshake agreements. Um, so although I didn't grow up a farmer, um, I did grow up in a small town. Um, Hoopston, Illinois is just in the middle of nowhere. It's, um. Probably, I think it was 30 miles to the nearest movie theater when okay. I was growing up. Okay. Um, so I went to church, and I went to school with farmers, and I can, I'm can i authentically a small-town girl. Yeah. I can authentically talk with small-town people. And so we just kind of gradually put together this network of handshake agreements. Um, and so as we got more animals, we got more handshake agreements. And um, we have, I would say, about... 2,000 acres under handshake agreements. Oh, my gosh. Now. Just some of the nicest pasture land in the Willamette Valley. Yeah. Um, we don't own any of it other than the five acres our house and the farm store are on.
0: Really? So they basically just rent you the land for the animals?
1: Yeah, there's different different ways to do it. A common way to do it with livestock is to charge um, per head per month. Okay. Um, so like $15 per head per month for cattle grazing is kind of a typical going rate.
0: Okay. And so that, I guess that benefits you because you don't have to maintain the land and it benefits them because they still own the land. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a good thing for everybody. Yeah.
1: yeah. So, uh, you know, the large landholders tend to be old families who've owned the land for a long time. Um, I'm speaking in pretty broad generalizations <laughs> here, but... um. Often, I mean, the the average age of a farmer in Oregon is pushing 60. Okay. So, half of all farmers are older than 60. Many of them are looking for ways to work less.
0: Yeah.
1: Right? And it's a lot of work to look after animals.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so, passive income, such as um, rental agreements like this, are a good thing for older landowners. Sure. Um, works great for us because we would never have had the capital to buy 2000 acres of prime pasture land.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, that could get expensive, right? Yeah. It's the it's the one thing they're not making more of.
1: No, that's yeah. true. Yeah.
0: <laughs> wow. So you guys you uh over time you realized that that was really what you wanted to do. You left Intel and then you just what what was the what was the driving force behind it? Just that you wanted to to um grow the wrong word, grow food that was healthy and organic for people?
1: Yeah. So you know I would say I would say our motivations have changed over time. Mm-hmm. Um, in the beginning, it was that. It was that there was this wonderful, delicious, healthy way to grow food that just wasn't widely available, that there was much more demand than supply. So, chickens that are fed as certified organic grain and where meat chickens, not just laying hens, but meat chickens, are grown outdoors on pasture and allowed to eat grass and bugs and be in the sunshine. Um, So, just like other animals, um, when chickens eat grass, the omega-3 content in their flesh goes up. Uh, You get the conjugated linoleic acids that are cancer-fighting. They're they're demonstrably healthier to eat than... A commodity chicken, yes, and that was the driver for me at the beginning. Um, what we learned is, as you as you really control all the details, um, like gentle husbandry, actually contributes to the way the animal tastes too. So, an animal that's not stressed out at the moment it's killed yeah. has uh, less acids in the muscles. Okay, and um, I mean, you know, when you get startled and you just get this flood of hormones in in your in your muscles and you can feel it for like tens of minutes afterwards it takes a long time for that stress to dissipate sure, and that actually flavors uh the muscles Hmm. um and then we were learning that if you're taking care of the soil and um and working to build better grass like the grass actually tastes better and has a nutritional f- profile that's different and all of these things contribute to better tasting more nutrient dense food but what we learned over time is it works the other way too so growing really good meat also benefits the soil and um and like the the really revelatory motivator for me the last 5 years has become That careful agriculture like this actually has the power to reverse climate change. Mm -hmm. So I'm not talking about just not doing bad things. I'm talking about actively positive things to reverse climate change.
0: And uh, can you elaborate on that? How, how, How does that work?
1: Heck yeah. So regenerate and I can go on for a long time about this. So like I'm going to be watching you to, for signs that you're glazing over because I can geek out on this all day. Nice. But um so greenhouse gases, right? Are it's mostly carbon dioxide, CO2. We hear about it all the time in the news in the context yeah. of global warming, right? But what's in the soil? Carbon. Okay. And if you think back to biology class, Humans inhale oxygen and exhale carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. Plants inhale carbon dioxide and exhale oxygen, right? Yes. What happened to the carbon, right? Okay. Um, It gets pulled in through the plant, and they grow new root material, and it gets deposited in the soil. Okay. So the faster plants are growing, and of course plants have, you see this in your lawn, plants have cycles where they grow very rapidly. When they're growing rapidly, they're pulling carbon dioxide out of the air and putting it into the soil. Okay. And grazing animals keeps plants growing in this rapid recovery mode. So when you mow your lawn and then it immediately goes into this recovery phase where it grows fast the first few days afterwards, you can manage grazing animals to have that same effect. Okay. So you put a high-density mob of cattle on a pasture. They eat all the grass down, and then they move on to another part of pasture. This area that's left behind and recovering is pulling carbon dioxide out of the air, building root material, and depositing that carbon in the soil. It's literally building soil out of the air.
0: Okay. And also, when they poop, it fertilizes the area too, right?
1: Sure. So the, the difference there is... The the poop is coming, I mean, the, the solids in the poop, right, are coming from the food that they eat, which is uh, the grass.
0: Yeah.
1: And that's just a cycle, mm-hmm. right? So grass in, poop out, it's basically a loop. Mm-hmm. But the building, the soil, like all that extra carbon that's in the air from burning fossil fuels and stuff, that's outside the loop. Okay. So, you know, animals eat they poop the grass grows this is a closed cycle right and i'm if you're just listening i'm making a circle with my hand
0: (laughs) it's a very good circle
1: there's this there's this other up and down thing happening off on the side where we take fossil fuels that used to be locked underground and we burn them and we put them in the air and there's no cycle there yeah and that's the problem is it's this one-way vector that just takes carbon out of the ground and puts it in the air
0: but if you plant more trees won't the trees just eat it
1: they could, but the problem is that our forestation is going the other direction, yeah. right? We're, we're burning trees, uh-huh. and that's, that is part of the problem. It's not just that that puts more carbon in the air. It's that we're losing the mechanism to take it out of the air, okay. and grass grows a lot faster than trees do. Yes. And you can have pasture land where we already have agricultural land. Um, and it's economically productive. Forests, it's harder to make economically productive. That's one of the reasons we humans are so good at burning them down to well, make it also, way for agriculture. Yeah, it, and
0: it also takes a lot longer for the trees to grow. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah they grow slowly.
0: Well, can, so can you tell me about the argument that um, cows produce a lot of methane, mm-hmm. and so that's the argument to not have livestock and right?
1: Yeah, that's the argument. It it doesn't hold water. So yeah. um the analysis that that I've read recently is that when you compare the number of cows that we have now, say in North America, to the number of buffalo and antelope and other wild ruminant animals mm-hmm. that were here before we were, mm-hmm. Our cattle herd now is about eighty-five percent the size of the buffalo herds that were here before. Okay. So the number of grazing animals is not the problem, right? There was there was not a problem with global warming three hundred years ago. Yeah. Um. Yes, it's true. Cows fart and cows poop, mm-hmm. as everybody else does, but they don't burn fossil fuels. Yeah. Um. And again, like. All that methane that's coming out of the cow is coming from food that they eat. So mm-hmm. the plants were already there, right? And it's and again, I'm making this circular hand yeah. motion, right? It's the so, loop. Yeah, it's the loop. And that's normal and I think natural and healthy and sustainable. As long as this methane is getting reabsorbed as carbon dioxide. Methane doesn't hang around in the atmosphere as long as carbon dioxide does. Mm-hmm. It breaks down. And then it becomes available as carbon dioxide, which the plants then breathe and um, you know convert to soil and convert sure. to oxygen
0: sure so can you can you explain for people who are unaware what makes your cattle different from from the, the, the livestock yards in Colorado or in the Midwest that get slaughtered and sent to McDonald's or or Wendy's or whatever? What makes yours, like in terms of what they're eating and what they're doing day to day versus what these other cows are doing?
1: Sure. So we have the great good fortune of living in Western Oregon, um, which happens to be the grass seed capital of the world. Grass grows really well here in Oregon And anybody who has a lawn knows this, right? The grass is green all year long.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, It grows really, really well, which makes this a great place to grow animals that depend on grass. Grass doesn't grow as well in Colorado. It's much more arid. It's much more brown. And when you concentrate cattle in feedlots, you have to bring them food. And the food that they bring them is corn and soybeans. Right. So those are grown in the Midwest. Now I grew up in Hoopstead, Illinois, which is corn and soybean country, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and those are grown with tremendous inputs. So here I'm talking about fossil fuel-based inputs, fertilizers, pesticides, herbicides, all of it. All of that land is drained by the Mississippi River. All of that chemical load gets dumped in the Gulf of Mexico. Mm-hmm. And all of it contributes to this one-way vector that was happening over here on the left, right? You burn fossil fuels, you convert them to fertilizer, you manufacture herbicides and pesticides, and all of that goes up in the air. Mm -hmm. But the other problem is the plowing. Um, So previously, 300 years ago, all the Midwest was prairie. It had never been plowed, um, and there was a lot of carbon locked in those topsoils. Over the last couple hundred years, we've done a lot of plowing. Every time you plow, you release carbon dioxide. Okay. And, um, so, so there, there are multiple problems, right? One is it takes all these fossil fuel inputs to grow corn and soybean monoculture crops. Another is it takes all these tractor passes, which burns a lot of, uh, fossil fuels every time you do a tractor pass. You're f- plowing, so, all of those all extra carbon dioxide gets released to the atmosphere. And then all this chemical load gets dumped in the Gulf of Mexico, which mm-hmm. affects its biology sure. and all of its plant life and all of its ability to absorb carbon out of the atmosphere as well. And then you truck all of these grains to Colorado, concentrated in a feedlot to feed the cattle. Yeah. Now you do have a methane and poop problem because Mm -hmm. the land can't absorb it when it's that concentrated. When when cattle are grazing and they're on a pasture, especially when you're rotating them around, um, the land can easily absorb the manure load. And when you're not using herbicides and pesticides, there are a lot of other life forms that break that manure down, right? There are all kinds of bugs and bacteria and fungus and all the normal healthy things mm-hmm. that make that manure into um, usable fertilizer, which in turn stimulates the grass so that it grows more and pulls even more carbon mm-hmm. dioxide out of the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. I warned you I could like go on and on. I, I <laughs> no, it's great. I'm dangerous at it's parties. Great.
0: No, it's <laughs> great. Um, yeah, I just I wanted to, to get you on that because I, I think – I think there are a lot of people now who know more about it, but I think most people—they don't realize the the environment that the hamburger they're eating from McDonald's. They, they don't understand like where it came from and what that cow lived through to get slaughtered, and what it ate, and all the antibiotics that were shoved into it to keep it from getting sick. And then that's why that's why a cheeseburger costs ninety nine cents. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, then you all ha- the
1: costs are externalized. Yes, They're, you don't you don't pay for it on the burger, but you pay for it in your taxes, which then provides subsidies to the corporations mm-hmm. that grow all these grains that we don't need. Yes, burning all these fossil fuels that we shouldn't be, and and we subsidize that, mm-hmm. and then our taxes have to be used to clean up environmental problems mm-hmm. um, like huge manure lagoon spills. Um, so. It's not just the 99 cents. A big part of your tax bill is also covering all the costs associated with producing that 99-cent burger.
0: For sure. And then the health effects down the road, too, Yeah, with obesity and um, heart disease and all the things that come from eating that crappy meat all the time.
1: Yeah. So there are definitely antibiotic residues in the meat. And, like, again, this is a whole subject that I could just geek out on. I got um, really involved in trying to limit— Um, animal use of antibiotics, some 80% of all the antibiotics in use in the U.S. go prophylactically to livestock animals. In other words, it's not treating um, like an acute leg infection or pneumonia. It's they're getting like a little dose of antibiotic every day. And you might ask yourself, why would they need a little antibiotic every day? And there's two reasons. One is because they're living in these squalid, high-density conditions. So, you know, if we were living that way, we would need antibiotics every day, too, because when you're living in your own waste, you're going to get sick. Yeah. The second reason is when you take antibiotics every day, it turns out you retain water. And guess what? That, you can measure that on a scale, right? So instead of, I don't know, weighing a pound and a quarter, your sirloin steak weighs a pound and a half. Really? And the animal gets up to slaughter weight sooner, and they can charge you a little more. Huh. Now, you actually see this when you cook. So, you take a commodity steak and put it in a frying pan, and all this fluid comes out. Mm-hmm. That's that retained water from the antibiotics that the animal really? is receiving every and day. And the,
0: then we as humans are, are taking all those antibiotics and putting them in our bodies as you, well. You
1: bet we are. Yeah. Yeah. Because how could we not be, right? Yeah. And then we have all these superbugs that we can't treat. So yeah. there's there's a lot of scientific talk about living in this golden age of antibiotics that maybe lasts 200 years from like 1940 to probably not more than 200 years out from there. Mm-hmm. And in this golden age, we have this antibiotic wonder drug to fight infections, but it's, it's not going to last at the rate we're mm-hmm. using it.
0: hmm yeah, we're just inherently more unhealthy than we were 100 years ago just by yeah. the nature of what we're eating, right?
1: Yeah, and the thing is it's it's not so it's not just that when you take antibiotics you should finish the whole course, it's that there's all this antibiotic resistance in this whole big environment. Um there's a book called Big Chicken, which is like big industry chicken, uh-huh. um which I think documents the science really well that all bacteria are learning this antibiotic resistance from each other. Or learning is the wrong word, but it's a little they're difficult. having
0: it, meetings about they, it. Yeah, <laughs>
1: they, they, they uh, it transfers. Yeah, and so um, like urinary tract infections that are uh, resistant to um, antibiotics have the same biological markers as the um, bacteria that come out of large-scale chicken production. Hmm. Even for people who don't raise chickens or eat chicken, like the, the bacteria is just in the environment.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's unavoidable, right? Yeah, it's, uh, it's disappointing. But then there's a place like what uh, you guys are doing, where yeah. you're, you're feeding animals the way that, they're, that you assume like when you when you picture a chicken eating, it's just like walking around getting worms, getting grubs, you know, just finding things on the ground like that seems natural exactly, but the majority of the chicken we're eating and the eggs that they're giving us that's not where it's coming from. They're in cages, a hundred thousand of them inside a warehouse, and so I wanted to ask you. Hopefully, you. you I'm sure you do. Hopefully, you know a bunch about this. The uh, terms that they write on the (laughs) egg cartons, because there's cage free, there's um, organic, there's. uh, I'm going to draw a blank on the rest of them. There's like five or six different things that they write on those cartons.
1: Yeah, so so cage free. When they talk about cages for egg-laying chickens, they're really talking about a cage that's like the size of the chicken. And they would literally put racks, almost like in the movie The Matrix, just racks of these cages, each with one laying hen in it. Sure. Because that way they could monitor the egg that she lays. Okay. Um, and they lay on these little ramps and they all like, go down this crazy little chute. Uh-huh. Um and uh and the point is that the her manure drops through all of it drops through to the ground so they don't have to clean mm-hmm. um if she stops laying an egg, they know so they can pull her out of production, which is a way to say kill her mm-hmm. right if her if the eggs that she's laying are too small or too large so that the mechanical handling of the eggs can't handle it, she's out of there, so it's all about uniformity, yeah. Um, But the cages are too small for them to stretch their wings all the way Mm -hmm. or to move around really in any natural way. So, cage-free just means they're in a warehouse. Um, They can still be very densely crowded. Mm -hmm. They can be in very unsanitary conditions. They can never be outside. But it's not actually a cage. So, that's cage-free.
0: Okay. And then I just remembered vegetarian-fed. That's another one.
1: Yeah. Vegetarian-fed is a weird one. So. It, it's not natural for birds at all to be vegetarians. I mean, think about the birds in your yard, right? They go after the worms.
0: They're ruthless.
1: Yeah, they, they are. They'll go
0: after mice and all kinds of stuff. If
1: you stand still long enough, they'll go after you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're, the, they're the closest living descendants of dinosaurs. And right. they are omnivores, just yeah. like humans. Uh-huh. Their digestive tract is just like humans. Um and they love bugs and grubs and insects and, as you say, mice and other small rodents mm-hmm. and basically anything else you put in front of it. So vegetarian fed means they get denied all of those pleasures and mm-hmm. basically they just get all their protein usually from soy. So it's it's a exclusively corn and soy feed.
0: But it's a mind trick because you see that and you're like, oh, that sounds good.
1: Yeah. There's a lot of mind tricks yeah. in industrial food production. Yeah. You know the mind trick where, like, the label for the beef shows two or three happy cows on a grass pasture? Yeah. That's usually a mind trick, too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: It's a bummer. But, I mean, what happens is, and I notice this the more, you know, I, I grow up and the more I go to the grocery store and stuff like that, you associate, like, you go to the store and you see an apple. And an apple costs a $1.29 a pound. So, if you go somewhere else and the apples are three dollars a pound, you're like, "Oh, that's way too expensive and the same thing yeah. happens with beef. If you go to the grocery store and and uh, cuts of steak are two ninety nine a pound or something, and then you see the organic mm-hmm. stuff, which is actually real and what it's supposed to be and better for you, and you see that for five ninety nine a pound, you're like, "Oh, well, I couldn't possibly spend five ninety nine a pound, but yeah." It's all relative to whatever you see in the grocery store you
1: you it's all culture, yeah, yeah, so I have never seen a grocery store ad, you know, like in the newspaper grocery store ads that says we have better food at higher prices, they all are advertising low prices and no other characteristic mm-hmm. um, my My parents are from this generation, and um and I always. I I love this as an illustration. My parents are well-traveled. My dad would come back from trips to Europe and say, you know, the food is a little better there, but it sure is expensive. Mm -hmm. And I would come back from Europe and say, you know, the food's a little more expensive in Europe, but man, it is so much better. And it's really just how you look at it. So it is true that paying a higher price price for an apple, for example, doesn't guarantee you that the apple is different or better, but it is also absolutely true that if you want a better apple, it costs more to grow it that way. Sure, sure.
0: Yeah, it's this uh, it's this weird path that we've gone down, and because there's there's such a great possibility to uh, mass produce these things and make money at doing it usually people are more likely to to purchase the thing that costs less. And that doesn't always mean it's better.
1: It doesn't always even mean it's cheaper. When I was working at Intel, I spent $800. I had great health insurance, by the way. I spent $800 a month on prescription drugs. So I had the cholesterol medication, the iron supplements, the asthma medicine, had something to help me sleep at night because I was stressed out, Mm -hmm. something for indigestion. So, you know, $800 a month goes a long way towards your food budget if you prefer to spend that money on better food. Mm -hmm. And um, for people who are looking at gosh, I'd like to do this, but how do I afford it? Mm-hmm. I would encourage you to put things like the slurpy Big Gulp sodas that you're maybe buying mm-hmm. into that same pool of money, right? Look at your prescription drug costs for many chronic conditions. I'm not talking about stopping your heart medication or stopping your diabetic medication. Yeah. But the fact is you can turn around your health with better food, and better exercise, and eventually not need those anymore. Mm -hmm. Certainly for things like sleep disorders and um, indigestion um, and some of these lower-level issues, you can very quickly discontinue prescription medications when you turn your health around. Mm -hmm. Um, But a lot of a lot of especially sugar drinks and snack foods and convenience foods are very expensive
0: well they're they're not satiating either, Mm-mm. like you're still hungry after you get a happy meal or whatever like if you buy higher quality food you're you're more likely to eat less of it because it's just it's better for you and your body knows it, yeah. And so,
1: yeah, your body doesn't just need calories. It needs nutrients. Yeah. And when it gets the calories and not the nutrients, it's still hungry for the nutrients and for it's sure. going to drive you to keep eating until sure. you find the nutrients. But mm-hmm. if, all you're, if all you're providing is potato chips, it's never going to get there.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, going back to the farm, uh, and you were talking about the process of taking them to the end. And, and making it, and I remember reading this, I told you that I, I read your uh, newsletters because I'm on your your uh, email uh, send out, and uh, I remember reading at one point, or maybe it was even on the website, I can't remember, but it talks about the, the end of the road for your cattle. And I seem to remember you saying something about blueberries. Do you give them blueberries or did I make that blueberries?
1: up? I've given cows blueberries before, not as a regular thing, but yeah, we've
0: Maybe I'm making that up okay i
1: I, I have handed cattle <laughs> berries for sure, but no that's not part of the regular okay
0: <laughs> well, what I was getting at is you're saying that they they live healthy, happy lives and and they they go through and then when it comes to the end and it's it's gonna happen and and they're mm-hmm. going to slaughter, you kind of take them out and they get kind of like a final.
1: Yeah. We like to say our animals only have one bad day. Mm-hmm. And the fact is, they're animals being raised for food, mm-hmm. right? The The end is a known state, right? Yeah. Um, but we try to make that day as stress-free free as possible. Sure. Um, part of that is kind of practicing every day so that it's not outside their normal routine. So... Um, for our cattle, the the feed barn or the feed shed is also the slaughter shed.
0: Huh.
1: Um, so one of the ways that we keep our beef very consistent year-round is to supplement with hay, even during this, this season when the grass is growing real well. So they're still getting dry alfalfa hay and clover silage uh, during the season because it keeps their feed very consistent. So every day they come into the feed barn, they get their hay, We kind of get the chance to check everybody over, and then they go back out to graze. Mm -hmm. And tomorrow, they come in, they get their hay ration. We kind of handle everybody, and they go back out to graze. And this happens every day. Mm -hmm. So they come in and feed. They go back out. It's just part of their pleasant routine. So on slaughter day, they come in to get their hay. We handle them. We kind of... Find the four to six cattle who are going to be slaughtered that day and Uh keep them back. Everybody else goes to the farthest away part of the pasture. Uh And those four to six animals just stay in the feed shed, and they can continue to hang out and eat alfalfa Uh until the slaughter truck arrives. Uh So that's about as low stress as you could get. I mean, it's basically... Like just getting to hang out the cookie jar all day. <laughs> a little bit longer, um, yeah. But because they've been handled every day, they're used to being around people, uh-huh. um, and it's it's not stressful for them.
0: Do you feel like they ever n- like the other parts of the pack know that something happened, like a hey, Ricky didn't come um, back?
1: I I haven't seen that happen. No. Um, no. Um, We're not separating mothers from babies at this time. I mean, like, I have seen it happen that when a mother and a nursing baby get separated, they call for each other and they're distraught if they can't find each other for a while. That makes sense. That's not happening with slaughter because the animals that are being slaughtered are 18 to 24 months old. So Mm -hmm. they're long past weaning.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And do you you ever develop relationships with them where you're kind of... I don't know. Is it ever like heartbreaking to have to do it or have you been doing it long enough now where you're just like, this is, this is what we're doing.
1: Um, it was heartbreaking at the beginning. Um, I had gone years really without eating meat at all. I mean, that's how I got anemic in the first place. Right. Um, and I would say as I, I guess got myself steeled up to start eating meat again, um, that was it. There was emotional work to do there, yeah. too, right? And um, and I mean, eventually, I have slaughtered animals myself, mm-hmm. and that took probably two years bef- between deciding that that was something that I was going to work towards doing until I actually did it. Yeah. But then, like, by the time I got to that moment, I had already done all the emotional work, I guess is the way to say it. So, yeah. Once I started actually doing it, it doesn't bother me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I have a friend who owns a farm in Dallas, Oregon, mm-hmm. and he, I mean, it's, it's much smaller scale. They just have a couple cattle, a couple sheep, 40 chickens, you know, stuff like that. Not, not large scale and by any means, but he recently had to start doing that. And he said it was tough at first, but then you just kind of, you kind of get used to it. Um, It's one of those things that, uh, and this goes back to humans being conditioned in the life that we live right now, where you just go to the store and you see a slab of whatever and you just grab it and then you go home and make it. And you don't really know where it came from.
1: Yeah. And see, that's what was bothering me. And, um, And the thing is, if it's from my farm and it's an animal that I knew and I was involved in caring for it and raising it and feeding it and managing its health and happiness through its whole life, Yeah, I feel a lot better about eating that animal. Oh, for sure. Um, because like, that is what's broken about our industrialized food system is you don't have any relationship at all with your food. Where yeah. did it come from? Are the claims yeah. on the label true? How long has it been sitting around in the refrigerator or freezer? Where did it come from? I mean, all of these things are actually unknowable in our current food system. Mm-hmm. And so the trade-off is if you want to be more intimate with your food, you, you have to go all in on the intimacy, right? Yeah. And that includes how does the animal die? How is it processed? Um, I mean, we we really had to dig in and become experts on all of those aspects.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that I think, Everybody did forever. And then it reached a point where it could be commercialized and people didn't have to think about it anymore. And so I think there's a lot of people that hesitate, you know, people maybe that go vegan or something. But um, it's more just about understanding why it is and, and what it is, because that's how we survived. That's how we evolved for hundreds of thousands of years you need protein and so I guess I'm transitioning you know (laughs) this kind of gets into all of the uh, Beyond Burger stuff and the attempt for large scale agriculture to transition from real animals into fake animals I guess and the goal I I suppose for, for a lot of people is that we don't eat Meat anymore? We don't eat animals anymore. You still have to get protein, so then we get the protein from the soybeans, right?
1: Yeah. So back to soybeans. Yeah. So I grew up in Central Illinois. My hometown is basically the midpoint of the line between Champaign Urbana, Illinois, and uh, Purdue University at Lafayette, Indiana. So I mean, just the heart of soy and corn country. And, um, you know, the world does not need more monoculture GMO soybeans with all of the synthetic chemical inputs that that requires. So, um, converting—so, pasture land in Oregon can't grow soybeans, Mm -hmm. for one thing. So, soybeans need hot nights. Corn needs hot nights. Hot, humid nights, not not like the nights we have in Oregon. And in many parts of the world, these are crops that just won't grow there. You need the Midwest. You need f- flat acres, lots and lots of water. I'm talking about lots of water. Mm-hmm. And you need hot, humid nights all summer for those crops to grow well. There's, there's not that much land in the world that's really suitable for corn and soybeans. Mm. Um, impossible Burger actually brags about genetic modification of mm-hmm. soy, right? They've modified the heme of the plant root. It is a genetic modification. Um, so you can't have an organic soy Impossible Burger. Hmm. These are. This is always going to be soy that's grown with all the chemical inputs. Um, so again, we're talking about mining fossil fuels, making synthetic fertilizers, making synthetic herbicides and pesticides. Those herbicides and pesticides are creating weeds that can't be killed, that require more and more applications Hmm. of stronger and stronger herbicides to kill the weeds. Um, It's killing a lot of the biodiversity that's um, in the insect population and in the soil population. You're plowing constantly, which means you're always releasing this extra carbon into the air. Mm-hmm. As you kill off all of those bugs with all those pesticides, the the soil becomes dead, so it doesn't absorb carbon the way it used to. Yeah. So, like, I just don't think the Impossible Burger is going to save the world. Mm-hmm. Um, just like it's not going to work that way. It's
0: a huge dilemma because. The population is growing exponentially, and they gotta f- find a way to feed all these people, but I don't know what the solution is.
1: Yeah, that's true. Although it um, seems like population is gonna level off in the next one or two hundred years. Education yeah. is a beautiful thing. Um, and gosh, you, you know,
0: mean because you think people will stop having as many kids?
1: Yeah, so the more, well, that's what the data says. So the okay. data says that as you, as especially women are educated and have more access to birth control, uh-huh. family sizes get smaller uh-huh. um, by choice, not just by legislation. Um, so, the, the I don't know, the modeling that I've seen, um, I'm trying to remember what the book was that I was reading last week. I think it's called The Great Slowdown or The Slowdown. Okay. is a model of population growth and other uh, things. It implies that, it, I mean, different models say different things, but that human population will level off at about 11 billion, hmm. and then it'll fall slightly from there and become stable at something lower. But it won't keep going up forever.
0: Okay. I haven't heard that before. I'm interested in learning about that for sure. So, Yeah, it's a a dilemma.
1: Yeah, but we do need to eat. And giving people control over their own food, I think, is is better than relying on large corporations to do it for us.
0: Yeah, because, I mean, at some point they could probably find a way to just give you protein and nutrients in a pill. But eating food is one of the best things. That's, like, one of the coolest parts of being a human. I don't want to just eat astronaut food for dinner?
1: Yeah, I don't think the astronauts want that either. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. Um, They say that at the beginning of the 20th century, something like 25% of all the calories consumed in the U.S. were grown at the address where they were consumed. Huh. So, in other words, each of us who's lucky enough to have a house has a lot of agency to growing our own food. We don't have to have lawns. I mean, growing grass makes a lot of sense if you have an animal there to eat the grass and turn mm-hmm. it into food for you. But otherwise, you're probably better with a garden.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And your garden could probably have some chickens in it. Yeah. And you don't have to buy all your food at the grocery store. Uh-huh. And um, if we converted a lot of our lawns to gardens, that would go a long way towards feeding people. hmm um, I've read that we throw away a third of our food in the U.S. Just wasted, like put mm-hmm. down the garbage disposal and into the garbage. Um, with better planning, we could throw less away. So yeah. there, there's a lot of wasted calories out there and wasted opportunities to grow them. Mm-hmm.
0: And so, what uh, what's your guys's plan from from here on out? I know you're uh, you're doing salmon. Now, or you have been for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also have chickens. Yeah, you have beef.
1: Yeah, and beef and lamb
0: and lamb. Do you do you have plans to do other things as well?
1: Um, not so much specific plans. Um, we'll be. We, we've outgrown our little farm store at the farm this past year, so we've expanded into a bigger building on the property. Cool. That building has a little more display space, so we're able to feature some products from local producers. Um, so, for example, the Sake One Brewery is just up the street from us. Okay. Um, so we've brought in some of their sake. So these aren't things we produce, but they're things that have a context in our store. Mm-hmm. Um, all of the seafood that we have is sushi-grade and sustainably wild-caught. So I think it's interesting to offer sake. And um, there's a farm in Oregon that grows wasabi. And we're going to bring in uh, Oregon-grown wasabi to support the sushi-grade seafood Very as cool. well. Um, there's also um, a project in the Willamette Valley to bring back heirloom wheat and other Heirloom Grains. Yes. And um, to mill flowers. And uh, so we'll be bringing Tuolity Grains, Tuolity Plains, Great Grains brand flowers and grains into the farm store too. Okay. So we'll be able to, I guess, feature and amplify some of these other small enterprises that are in the neighborhood.
0: Okay. Two things before I forget them. What, what is sushi grade? What, what makes it sushi grade?
1: Great question. So... There's this myth that sushi-grade beans it's really freshly caught or maybe somehow it's more hygienically slaughtered or Uh processed or something. Um, Actually, it refers to the presence of parasites in the flesh or or their eggs. And the way to kill those is um, by freezing in a commercial freezer. So to be sushi safe, seafood has to be held at minus 2 degrees Fahrenheit for longer than five days. Hmm. And that basically can only happen in a commercial freezer. You can't do that at home.
0: Oh, wow. Cause you can't get a freezer that goes that cold?
1: Correct. Huh,
0: wow, okay. Uh, okay, then the other thing was uh, heirloom wheat. Mm-hmm. Because there, I don't know that much about it, but apparently a lot of the gluten intolerance potentially could be tied to some of the wheat that is being produced for... Um,
1: yeah, I'm not an expert in gluten intolerance, but um, yeah, some of it has to do with variety. Uh-huh. So the um, the GMO wheat that's becoming predominant um, is descended from what they call short wheat,
0: okay.
1: um, which was important. So heirloom wheats tend to be like five to six feet tall, okay. and they have root balls that are... Very, very deep, like 10 feet deep. So wheat was always grown in relatively arid climates because its deep root structure would let it find water deep in the soil. Okay. Um, it was prone to falling over in the wind, which would make it hard to harvest. And it was prone to um, a fungal disease called, I think it's fusarium or that's close, um, which, that which is a poison toxin that actually killed people so the the modern short dwarf wheats um, because they're short they don't blow over in the wind which makes them easy to harvest they're very uniform in height which makes them easy to harvest all the berries become ripe at the same moment which makes it easy to harvest but they have very very short roots Hmm. and so they have to be fertilized and they have to be watered Hmm. Um, and so, all of the GMO wheats are derived from these short wheats where these heirloom wheats have disease resistance to other various diseases and to pests. Um, they can be grown in very arid climates without all these synthetic inputs, which the modern wheats cannot. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, if we're trying to you know reduce the use of fossil fuels, heirloom wheats are important. They tend to have fantastic flavors. Mm-hmm. Um, different um protein to fat to carbohydrate ratios than the modern ones do. So some are better for bread baking, some are better for pastries, some are better for flatbreads. Um they come in different colors. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're
0: Well, they're traditionally from Italy too, right?
1: Uh well, wheat's from all over. So Okay. Yeah, wheat um, and I don't think wheat we may have been indigenous to Italy, or some wheats may have, but I think most of it came from the Fertile Crescent in Iraq and Iran. Oh, really? And then was brought into Europe. Huh. But in in Italy, they grow heirloom wheats. They don't grow GMO wheats. Yes. GMO gro- yes. crops are banned in Europe.
0: In um, all of Europe. Yeah. Really? Yeah. The
1: EU does not allow GMO crops. Huh. Yeah. And um, and then the milling process concentrates gluten in strange ways. And again, I'm not an expert on this, but I know they separate the gluten from the other parts of the flour. And then there are like gluten salesmen who look for ways to put this into processed foods so that they don't have to throw it away. Oh, wow. And so processed foods tend to have higher levels of gluten than natural foods. Huh.
0: It's kind of like with the the corn seed, right? There's different ways they can extract all the different pieces. Yeah, there's
1: like 80 different products. Yeah. They make like chemical products they make from corn now.
0: That's crazy.
1: That happens in my old stomping grounds too. The Archer (laughs) Daniels Midland Company in Decatur, Illinois. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. And soy too. like So like in vegetarian foods you'll see soy protein isolate Mm -hmm. well that's not a natural substance that's a highly processed substance Hmm. that's just a little slice of what comes in a soybean that's not a whole food
0: Hmm. yeah it's wild technology has done some good things but it's also made things more convoluted and complicated
1: yeah So, like you were saying, a couple hundred thousand years ago, we were all hunter-gatherers, just kind of everybody out walking around, breathing and drinking and eating what we found, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And it probably would have sounded as strange to them that, like, a corporation could own all the food and sell it to you. Mm -hmm. As it sounds to us, the idea that a corporation could own the air and sell it to you, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But, like, we humans exist exist naturally to feed ourselves. We Mm -hmm. have all the skills and all the instincts to be able to find or raise our own food. And yet we've given up that agency to corporations who do not have our best interests or health in mind. They're they're strictly for profit.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's this cool video I saw a while back that explained uh, the transition from It it explained the discovery of fire and cooking meat so that it Mm. became easier to chew. And at that point in time, because we couldn't cook the meat, we had larger jaws and therefore smaller brains because we had to spend more time chewing the raw meat. Somebody found or discovered fire. We started cooking the meat. We didn't need to chew it as much. And so our jaws got smaller and then our brains got bigger. So it's this... It's this uh this element or this um item that we've been eating forever that has allowed us to become who we are and become much smarter than we used to be, and it just seems weird that uh there's all these efforts to like make it go away or make it become something else
1: yeah was that catching fire that you read was that the
0: uh th- there's all these crazy uh cool YouTube videos that explain evolution that I like to watch and show my kids and stuff like uh, that. The
1: book I read was Catching Fire, but exactly that mm-hmm. thesis mm-hmm. Um, that that basically mastering fire affected who we are as a species. Um, and as crazy. you say, not just physically, and it changed the length of our digestion system as well, by the way, right? Um, but also socially because... Now that you don't, so my husband was a a raw vegan for two years of his life. He said all he did all day was chew. Like there was no time to talk or work (laughs) or do anything else because you were just chewing. Yeah. Um, and his teeth are wrecked from those two years that Uh, he was a raw vegan. Um, but once your food is easier to chew, you actually have time to talk to each other. Yeah. And while foraging and grazing is a more solitary thing like if you find a few raspberries you tend to just put them in your own mouth you don't share them with the group
0: mm-hmm.
1: cooking is like a group activity and and eating cooked meat is a group activity mm-hmm. um, partly because there's just so much of it on an animal that one person can't eat it but also partly because somehow it's a shared experience and a shared activity yeah and then we and we like to talk when we eat so uh-huh. all of a sudden you can learn things from each other.
0: Yeah. No, it's a way to gather around and discuss everything. That's what I, I've been to Italy twice. And that was my favorite part about going there is that everything just shuts down for lunch. Isn't
1: like, it beautiful?
0: It's so cool. Just for yeah. like two hours from 1.15 to 3.15 or whatever, like really weird times. Like you just can't do anything other than go to a restaurant. Yeah. Everybody's just like, hey, we're eating now.
1: Yeah, and you might as well take your time about it because yeah. the service isn't going to happen any faster. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? And even if it did, where would you go? <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: It's really important, and I don't know. I wish people would uh, treat it that way a little bit more. There's, I mean, in this society, there's a focus on, I don't know if it's like success-driven or... I don't know. People just don't, I mean, that's why we have drive throughs Like you, you got another meeting or you got this thing to do. Yeah. Like I'm going to eat a cheeseburger in my car while I'm going to the next thing. It's like, it's benefited our culture in a lot of ways, I guess, but it's also like made things so much worse. Yeah. You know, there's just a different focus. I mean, I guess Americans are just more driven on making money yeah
1: yeah yeah we're very convenience focused and very ego focused
0: mm-hmm. yeah. yeah uh so oh, before we go, I forgot a on this email that you sent uh I love looking at this stuff because I never understand exactly what it is until I get a chart out like this, and what we're looking at right now is just the the chart of a cow and the various cuts that you can get. And, uh, my grandpa is a butcher and he's been a butcher for a very long time, like 40 years. And I, when I saw him, uh, recently, you know, a year ago or whatever, I asked him what his favorite cut was. And he said, ribeye, Mm -hmm. he said, ribeye is his favorite because it, uh, had the most flavor. And so what, what, what's your opinion? What do you like the most?
1: Uh, ribeye would be a good choice um i I think my favorite cut of beef is um a cross cut shank or also buco, okay, so um that one's not even really shown on this picture very much. You see on the legs it says hind shank two percent, and on the front leg it says shank three uh-huh. percent so if you cut that crosswise into circles. Um, you get cross-cut shanks, which is a braising cut. Those muscles work really hard, uh-huh. so they're tough. They have to be cooked long and slow. But also because they work hard, they've got a lot more flavor. Um, okay. So when you braise them, like for osso um, buco, is the classic Italian recipe for those. Mm-hmm. Um, all the connective tissue melts. You get a lot of collagen in it. The sauce gets this nice silky mouth feel to it. Nice. That's my favorite.
0: I, I had never heard of that before until I bought a quarter cow from you, and that was one of the cuts, <laughs> one of the packages. I was like, what is that? I'd never heard of it before.
1: So you Googled it? I did. <laughs> did you make also bucco? Uh,
0: My now ex-wife uh, made, yeah, she she put it together, and it was delicious for sure. Yeah, but it's off of one cow, you only get one. I guess we had a quarter, so could you get four
1: from a full? Yeah. So as you can see in the picture, there there's like four legs and four shanks, and um,
0: oh, one from each leg. Yeah. So, okay. So you get okay. a couple
1: couple slices from each leg. So
0: okay. Yeah, my my favorite has always just been a fillet,
1: because
0: mm-hmm. uh, that whenever when I was a kid and whenever my parents would get steaks, like that was like oh, it's somebody's birthday, you know, or something like that. And that was the cut that we'd always get. So, But I, I, according to my grandpa, (laughs) it doesn't have as much flavor as the ribeye? It doesn't
1: doesn't have as much flavor. It's more tender. Yeah. We Americans tend to value tenderness over flavor for our beef too. Okay. I think part of this, frankly, is because our animals tend to be so badly raised on such a bland diet. Okay. That meat really doesn't have—I mean, commodity meat in the U.S. just doesn't have the flavor profile it does in the rest of the world. Okay. I don't know. When you were in Italy, didn't you find, like, the flavor volume knob was, like, turned way up on— I
0: went once when I was
1: uh, 19, and then I went again when I was 22.
0: and I'm 37 now, so it's been 15 years, so I honestly don't remember— I mean, the food was delicious, but I couldn't compare the meat I ate then to the meat I eat now. Yeah,
1: I think your, like, taste sensitivity is improving a lot in those years, crucial years between 22 and 37. Yeah, I got to go back and check it out. That, that sounds like a good idea.
0: I love Italy for that, for that one reason. The food is so good there. Uh, okay, so what, have you been to Japan and done Wagyu?
1: I have not tasted Wagyu. Actually, it's interesting because on the drive over here, I was talking with my son in Kentucky, and Wagyu came up in that conversation too. Um, So, no, I haven't tasted it. I've seen pictures which look really beguiling. uh, But, no, I haven't tasted it.
0: Is it. Do you know the difference between that and Kobe?
1: So, Wagyu is a breed of cattle that specifically has been bred to have intramuscular fat. So there's there's subcutaneous fat, which is the fat under your skin. Uh-huh. And then there's intramuscular fat, which is the fat in between the fibers of muscle. Wow. And so it's the, that intramuscular fat that really makes the marbling in a steak. Mm, okay. And And that tends to be more with genetics. Subcutaneous fat, which is like this little roll that we all carry around here... Is much more diet related. Mm-hmm. It's not really a genetic uh, predisposition so much. Kobe beef is so Kobe is a, a place um, and it's also a husbandry style. It okay. uh, may also be a breed. I'm not sure about that. But uh, with Kobe, they feed the animals beer and give them massages and yes. they bear yes. a lot of the weight in hammocks so that, like, the weight's not on their legs. <laughs>
0: Seriously?
1: Yeah. and so I have not heard that before. And this all keeps the meat very tender. Wow.
0: See, I, I read somewhere, I don't know if this is true or not, but I read somewhere it had something to do with the type of grass they were eating as well. And it Probably. only grows in that part of Japan or something like that? It could well be. Okay. Yeah. So hammocks holding up.
1: Yeah, but you know, it, it just sounds a little creepy to me. I mean, I'm sure it's delicious. <laughs> yeah. But a lot of things are delicious and yeah. I demand more than just del- I mean I demand delicious from stuff I eat don't get me wrong but mm-hmm. like it has to be more than just delicious for me to be interested
0: Yeah for sure
1: for sure Um it seems like wagyu beef don't don't get like weirdly treated in any way they just naturally accumulate fat intramuscularly huh. so I don't think they have any strange husbandry ha- habits
0: Huh It's very interesting Well I think that's a good spot to uh to close it out. So I appreciate you coming down here
1: and hanging out with me. Well, it's been fun chatting with you. Thanks so much for the compliment of having me over.